Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Bruce Whitfield speaks to Hijo Pinar about the future of South Africa's economic landscape. Welcome to our Think Big series brought to you by PSG. I'm Dan Yehu. I'm the Chief Executive for PSG Distribution. PSG is a leading financial services group uh, with an extensive national footprint, advisor footprint, footprint in South Africa. We also have a presence in, in Namibia. We've been in operation since 1998 and we pride ourselves on providing a bigger picture approach to our clients' financial needs, um, asset management, wealth management, as well as short-term insurance. Uh, we offer clients access to, to a wide range of insurance and investment products based on, on comprehensive advice. We are an advice-led firm and our clients benefit from access to proprietary products and solutions, as well as a comprehensive list of third-party product providers and, uh, and service providers. The ThinkPick series is a collection of dialogue with leading speakers hosted by award-winning financial journalist, Bruce Whitfield. We aim to bring our audience independent insights that help them formulate their own opinion on some of our country's most pressing issues. Currently, uh, we've just passed or just had the local elections and the political parties are jockeying for position in forming coalitions uh, in the different municipalities. This creates uncertainty, a lot of challenges. They continue to abound. But we think with arming you with the necessary knowledge, we better equip you to make and chart your own way forward. Our social media campaign, hashtag ThinkBigPSG, this series is free, it's shareable, and open to anybody interested, whether you're a PSG client or not. In today's session, Bruce will talk with Hiku Pinar. Hiku started his career as an economics reporter at the Burger a newspaper in Cape Town. During 2003, he was nominated as one of the best newcomers in the prestigious Sunlam Financial Journalist of the Year Awards. That same year, he left the media industry and helped establish a newly formed economic consultancy firm. He was subsequently appointed as an economist at the Bureau of Economic Research. That was in 2006 and promoted to the chief economist in 2018, now taking the responsibility for the BER's macro forecasts. So we're in good hands today, and who better than Yehu to talk to us about the future of South Africa, the South African economy, which is always a very hotly debated topic. So without further delay, I'd like to hand over to Bruce. Dan, thanks very much indeed. On to Hiko of a different ilk, and this is Hiko Pinar. Um, Dan has given him a wonderful introduction. Are you as pessimistic as most mainstream economists are about the short, medium, and possibly even long-term future of South Africa from an economic perspective? Bruce, I think over the short term, um, it is it is quite hard not to be uh, fairly pessimistic, um, you know, as we speak or over the last while we've had load shedding again of of course uh we just um recently had a three week strike in in a damaging strike in in the steel uh sector and of course covid um is is still around we sort of uh fretting about a, a potential fourth wave um you know and as as in in the introduction uh, was mentioned 
uh, we, we face with some political uncertainty. So if you throw all of that in the pot, um, I think, yes, um, the, the, the short term does not look uh, particularly bright. Although, I mean, one has to say that our recovery uh, from the hard let's, rock... Let's get off. to that recovery in a moment, because I, would, I want to challenge the hypothesis of strikes and COVID and slowdowns and uncertain politics. I would argue, and I'm throwing a blindfolded dart at a dartboard here, half of the world's countries are in a very similar position, if not more. Everyone's worried about COVID, potential fourth waves, and uh, and what's coming next. Um, lots of countries have got really dodgy politics. Um, lots of countries have had a nice bounce back from the, the worst effects of COVID and have, have shown nice signs of recovery. Why is it about us in South Africa that we have this perpetual, pe pessim perpetual pessimism uh, about the future? Because so many other countries, I mean, the French go on, I mean, if they had a national sport, it would be going on strike. They, they have more strikes than we do, I think. They just don't you know, break and burn things nearly to the same extent. Um, lots of countries go through what we go through. Why is ours different? Why do we feel like we are, are different and special? Well, Bruce, I guess because our challenges are so much more, right? Uh, so, so France does not sit with a 34% with a unemployment rate, right? Um, um, and, and their developmental challenges are not, you know, ours is just so, so much more. So the point is, we need to do better. You know, we, we have so much catch up to do. So we really can't afford these sort of uh, setbacks or, or own goals. Or let's put it this way, we, we could afford it much less um, than, than wealthier uh, countries uh, can. Um, and of course, you know, uh, many countries do not have our energy constraint. Uh, many African countries do, sure. Um, but we, you know, the countries that we really compete with other emerging markets um, do not necessarily uh, have, have that. It's that it's that inequality issue. It's the Gini coefficient. It is the this lopsided economy where a tiny handful of people earn the vast majority of money and pay the vast majority of taxes that have to support a bigger and bigger and bigger proportion of the population as this economy just fails to gain any kind of meaningful jobs rich traction. This is right, uh, Bruce. Uh, so, I mean, the uh, the recent um, medium-term budget policy statement uh, made the point that that expenditure on the so-called social wage in, in South Africa, so this is if you take not just the social grants, but you take education, schooling, uh, etc., is 60% of our non-interest expenditure. Um, now, some of these expenditures, obviously, one needs to do, uh, but we want to be spending on other stuff, right? We want to be spending on infrastructure and 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 things that can create long-term uh, prosperity. Uh, but your point is right. So, so we we're becoming a, a a society where increasingly we we uh, people are living from handouts as opposed to being in informal sector employment and contributing to the tax base um, and and creating uh, prosperity. Um, so yeah, uh, that 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 is obviously a a, a huge uh, concern, and it's been for for a very long time. Is there anything in the works that gives you an indication that that position changes at all in the next decade? Bruce, I, I think if if we br briefly step back and and think of the part of our GDP that's really been poor. Uh, in the five years before COVID, 
uh, and that was the investment, the fixed investment in environment. Um, uh, very much um, on the on the public uh, sector side, the SOE side, the state-owned enterprises, but also on the private um, investment side. Now we are starting to be a bit more optimistic on um, saying that if we can get all of these green energy investment plans uh, going. Uh, so you think about this big energy reform, the embedded generation, uh, the licensing requirement lifted to 100 uh, megawatts. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest reforms we've had in this country, you know, in, in the last 10, 15 years. Um, along with that, we have the, the IPP or the independent power producer programs that have been delayed for sure, but there's some traction now. So I think we, one, one can look towards a, a better, if you take a three, five year view, uh, a better investment uh, uh, performance. And of course, that investment over time then should lift this energy constraint or this load shedding constraint that we've spoken about. Um, so I think that's one important area that, that we really have to drive uh, is to get that um, uh, investment momentum uh, going. And, and it's so interesting. I mean, you, the, the load shedding issue is a deeply emotional issue for so many South Africans. I mean, it's debilitating, it's frustrating, it's angering, but it is also um, the biggest drain. I mean, if I look at a Bureau for Economic Research graph of business confidence, and uh, I'm going to use my best technical skills right now um, to just illustrate this graph to you because uh, I, I don't have a fancy PowerPoint presentation, but you'll get you'll get the picture. If I just hold my camera up to my phone up to the lens, that is business confidence in South Africa since 1975 all the way through to the present day. The end part of that graph is from 2008 onwards. It coincides with the Zoom administration. It coincides with the loss of electricity. And it's been perpetually below the confidence level, below 50. Um, business confidence over the last 50 years is you know, more down below 50 than it is above 50. We have a confidence problem. And that confidence problem comes from the, the constraints within the economy, those physical and real world constraints. 100% right, Bruce. And, and, and I mean, it's not, it's not just power. Uh, I mean, just again, I've, I've, I've been reading through some comments from, from business people and the problems at local authorities, um, the, the constraints on, uh, you know, whether it's water provision or, uh, you know, just decent infrastructure being put in place. You know, this is a, increasingly a burden on, uh, on, on the private business uh, sector. So, yeah, so unfortunately, it, I, I think one, one can throw it under a broad statement to say that, uh, you know, the, it's hard to do business in this country and the cost of, of doing business is, is, is relatively high. Um, and that, of course, inhibits um, investment. It inhibits people, in, uh, companies expanding and employing uh, uh, more people. And all of that you know, I think then works into um, the psyche of, of business leaders in, uh, in, in South Africa. It doesn't mean, of course, and I guess we'll get to this, that there's, there, there, there isn't any opportunities, but uh, as a broad sort of statement, you know, there's a lot of constraints. 
So many of the opportunities, however, stem from state failures. So private security stems from a, a social failure, it stems from an economic failure, it stems from a justice failure, it stems from an inequality failure. Um, so yes, there's, a, there's six or 700,000 people employed in the private security industry. Brilliant, those are jobs, but they shouldn't be necessary to that extent. Um, the private electricity, for example, private healthcare, private this, private that. South Africa's economy has been privatized for the five or ten percent who can afford it um, and the rest of South Africa has been left behind uh, to be dealt with by the state which doesn't do its job. Yes and, and, and of course in, in some cases one can argue that the state shouldn't have done these things in the first place right or not to the same extent so, so I mean we, uh, we we suffer from these big monopolies right whether it is ESCOM whether it is Transnet um, I mean, the list go, just goes on and on. Uh, SAA, for, for example, why, why do we need a national carrier, right? I mean, the private sector can do these, these functions. Of course, there are certain things that, um, that the state has to do, right? And, and, and those things our state, unfortunately, you know, does not do particularly well. But then there are other things that they presumably do not have to do that they also want to do and that they also don't do well, if you, you, know, if you get where I'm going. So I think we, you know, and, and I must say, uh, there are parts of government, I think, particularly in the Treasury, that is starting to make the argument that, look, we really need to think of uh, what is the role of the state? What should the state do? And what other functions can we actually increasingly spin off uh, into the private sector? And that's perhaps another very positive sort of uh, development that, that, that we're starting to see, at least that, that, that this sort of a mind shift uh, is, is starting to change, I think. Well, I mean, apartheid didn't end because F.W. de Klerk, who died recently, of course, um, didn't, apartheid didn't end because F.W. de Klerk decided that he was going to be a better person. It ended because he ran out of money and we could no longer sustain um, the, uh, the, 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 the civil war in South Africa. In the same way as the ANC cannot sustain a state that is costing more than it generates and it doesn't add much value. And therefore, it is being forced with its back into a corner to privatize SAA, to bring private players um, into different aspects of the state-owned enterprise network, something that is the antithesis of so many people within government. I recall asking Pravin Gordon in 2017 in Davos why he didn't simply give SAA away, and he said, over my dead body. Um, I've checked, he's fine, um, but they're doing it now because there is no other option. Yeah, look, I, 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 I can't put it better than that, Bruce. I, I think that's exactly the point, that they, we have this sort of uh, developmental state uh, approach. Uh, and for that to sort of work, you need capable institutions yeah. um, and capable SOEs that drive that. Um, but unfortunately, we don't, right? Um, and that they've been undermined for, for many years. Their balance sheets are shot. So the, the balance sheets are simply not capable to do the investment that is required. And I think you are right. I mean, th that real, that penny has now dropped. Uh, and what is left is, you know, you need to uh, uh, involve the private sector to, to a greater uh, extent. Um, so, I mean, it, it's unfortunate that it's taken us so long to get to this point and we had to go through a lot of pain, right? Um, but, you know, I think at least it is positive that that recognition is is, is now starting to to appear. Albeit that, as you say, they sort of be pushed. There, there really is no other option. 
I mean, I've recognized for the past 12 years that I need to get to the gym. I haven't done it yet um, <laughs> with, with obvious consequences. Recognizing it is one thing. Acting on it and actually making it happen is something fundamentally different. And there is an argument. I was chatting to the very capable Hillary Joffe the other day from Business Day, and um, we were talking about policy reforms and stuff, and all of the really good positive noises that are coming out of the state. And she did do a stint um, at ESCOM during the days of Brian Darmus. And her view is that, you know, in order to even privatize failing elements of the state, you have to have a capable, a capable bureaucracy to do that. And she's not convinced our bureaucracy has even got it together to be able to privatize effectively, which actually made my blood run cold. Yeah, uh, I mean, let's put it this way, Bruce. I don't think we, and this is not a new thing. We can go right back to 2012 with the publication of the National Development Plan. It's not... I don't think the problem in this country is that we don't have decent plans. I mean, sure, we have some ill-informed suggestions on policy, sure, but in broad strokes, I think we have decent plans, and I think there's a sort of a appreciation of what the key problems is, but certainly the, the, the problem comes with the implementation or the follow-through uh, on, on, on these, these, these plans. That, that certainly has, has been dreadful, and whether it's a, a function of factionalism but, uh, within the ruling party, uh, ideological differences within cabinet, which I do think is, is, is a problem. You know, you, you can think of a number of factors, but the bottom line is delivery has, 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 not, uh, has, has not happened. And, and now the question is, will it improve over, over the next uh, five years. Well, there's the critical question because what we've seen happening over the last week is the horse trading and the setting up of coalitions and unlikely bedmates getting into bed with each other. They're grimacing. Nobody likes the arrangements that are being made, but there's some arrangements that simply cannot happen because uh, there is so much mistrust between political parties and with, with real justification. Uh, and we're beginning to see that sort of settle down a little bit now and we can get a, an idea of the lie of the land. I wonder if you take any encouragement at all from the local government election results where the ANC got the biggest hiding um, that it has got in 27 years, where the EFF was shown to have a, a limited appeal despite a really comprehensive election campaign where the splinter parties and independents came to the fore with promises of doing better. I wonder if you take comfort from that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Bruce, and, and I think there's probably a couple of angles here. Um, I think the one is on on on. Let's talk about populist um, populism's appeal in in South Africa, and the fact that we've now come through a uh, unprecedented crisis, uh, which which has worsened our our inequality problems, uh, and despite that, the EFF seems to have have. Uh, have a ceiling at around 10% of, of, of support. So that, I think on one level, that's, that, that, that must tell us that this electorate is not, um, the, the, the appeal of populism is not, is not that high. Um, so I think that, that is certainly one positive, I, I think one can take from, uh, from the election. Um, uh, of course, you know, you have to, again, caveat that by saying that lots of people, of course, just, uh, stayed away and, and decided not to participate in this process at all. Uh, but even so, I mean, those that did participate uh, did not overwhelmingly 
support a sort of a, a populism ticket, if you want to put it that way. I mean, I would go with the argument that if you are a populist party, you are going to get your supporters, as many as you possibly can, to come out to prove your point. If you're the ANC, you can traverse the country as much as you like, and so Ramaphosa um, did precisely that. Um, and if your voters are cross with you, they stay away. Um, and so the ANC has got a high disapproval rating. The EFF's approval rating simply didn't manifest. Um, if you live in social media world, Social media world tells us the EFF should have 90% of the popular vote in South Africa. There is just this massive disconnect. And um, from, a, from an economic perspective, that should be seen, I think, as a positive. I agree. Yeah, 100% uh, agree, Bruce. Um, Failing municipalities. Um, we've seen in the last year or so, Astral Foods take the Lekwa municipality, which is around Standerton, to court. And the Lekwa municipality failed to act on court order. So uh, Astral took the presidency to court and uh, forced National Treasury to appoint an administrator into the Lekwa municipality. And I chatted to Chris Kitterfeli recently, and he was saying things are going better. They're by no means perfect, but they can see the, the possibility of a turnaround where Makanda ran out of water and gift of the givers went in and three days later there was water for the residents of Makanda where the Charlotte Maclaika hospital didn't have water and a borehole was drilled and the, there was provision made um, in the areas around the old Lichtenberg and those municipalities where Clover voted with its feet after years of trying to get the municipality just to fix potholes and provide electricity and water on a regular and repeatable basis, failed to do so, moved a three billion rand cheese factory to, to Etiquini. We're, we're seeing some very deliberate moves in failing municipalities, and surely that vested interest element of it has actually got to cause a fundamental shift in the way that those local politicians think, because if if everybody takes their money away, there's nothing left to steal. So you, you would think you'd want to encourage people to stay as long as possible. So, Bruce, I, I think that along with another angle on, on the election is, is perhaps the, the point of accountability. Um, so if, you, if, if I'm a municipal manager and there's no feedback mechanism, I don't get punished at the polls, the, the local companies continue to pay their rates and taxes despite dreadful... Uh, municipal delivery, you know, there's no incentive for me to really change my, my ways. Well, now we've seen in, in, in this election, the, the ANC got a big club again um, in terms of their electoral support. And as you suggest, uh, companies are voting with their feet and they are sort of moving out of these uh, underperforming municipalities. So I think all of that um, you know, we it, it, uh, companies, voters are, are, are now s sending a signal that, look, uh, we're not going to take this um, and, and you need to improve. And, and that must be um, uh, positive if, if one thinks uh, in, in, into the future. I mean, a, a competitive electoral system um, is the way to go, right, to keep politicians on their uh, on, on their toes, uh, so to speak. I thought you were going to say to keep politicians honest, and I'm not too sure there's an electoral system in the world that could actually achieve, achieve that. Um, when we look, though, at the economics of South Africa, I'm going to read you a quote 
Um, and it comes from 1943. It's from a man called Cornelius de Kivet, who um, was born in the Netherlands, came to South Africa, was an historian, I think at Witz, and ultimately went and became the master of Cornell College in the United States. So a massively respected 20th century historian who in 1943 wrote, South Africa progresses through economic windfalls and political disasters. And it is this most wonderful, succinct, view of South Africa that is 80 years old. Um, is, it, and, and I wonder whether things have ever been any different in South Africa and whether we're simply going through yet another one of these political disaster periods that De Kivet wrote about in 1943. Uh, yeah, so, so Kees Bruggemans, the former chief economist that FNB used to often... Uh, use also that, Dutch, uh, by the way, yes. Uh, okay, sorry, correct. these Dutch guys, yeah. Correct. Um, yeah, and, and I think it is very apt, Bruce. Um, if, if you know, and and that you 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 mentioned that business confidence indicator of of the bureau earlier. So mm. within that indicator, um, we have a question in the manufacturing survey about constraints um, on activity, and the one constraint is the political climate. So is the general political climate a constraint on on your business? And if you plot that against that business confidence index. It's perhaps not surprising, but there's a very nice correlation. And, and you've mentioned that confidence is perennially low. Well, South Africa in our history, we've, we've often went through or gone through political crises, right? But at the same time, we've had these sort of economic windfalls. If you think about the gold price in the 1980s, so terrible political times in the 1980s, but we had a very high gold price and at that time of course the economy was dominated by uh by by the by gold so you know um and and you can think of this year again right we're being bailed out by by very high commodity prices um, our terms of trade is at a record current account is suddenly in, in a surplus uh fiscal revenue well it's not great but it's a lot better than we thought in in february um, so yeah, the history does seem to be repeating itself on, on that score. Where it's different this time, though, is that by the time we get to the budget in February of 2022, we're going to have more than four trillion rand in debt. Um, the, the component of paying back the money that we borrow, and thank goodness most of it is rand denominated, and that was, of the many things Trevor Manuel did right, that was one of the key ones, because we'd be in all kinds of different trouble if we dollar denominated our debt burden. Um, but we're going to have four trillion rands worth of debt. We're going to have very little money left in the fiscus, despite the tax windfalls of this year. And unless we can somehow replicate this 5% recovery that we're seeing in 2020 in outer years, we are going to run out of money. And I don't know what happens at that point. Do you? Well, so first of all, we, we, we need to prevent getting to that point, of course. Um, but if you, if you do, um, well, then, of course, there are a couple of options. Uh, the one that, that inevitably happens is that, that people go to the IMF um, and they sort of try and negotiate a, a bailout package from uh, from the IMF, but that is not, there's no free lunches, right? I mean, that comes with sort of harsh, um, I mean, people often talk about austerity in South Africa. We haven't seen austerity in, in, in South Africa. You know, if you, if you get an IMF package and they sort of take over your finances, you know, then you really start to feel uh, sort of pain in terms of having to cut back 
and live within uh, your means. Um, so that would be the one option, um, which is perhaps the lesser of, I mean, it's, it's, it's not great, but it's the lesser. Uh, the, the worst case outcome is, of course, that you default um, on, uh, on, on the debt. So you need to get to the IMF and a bailout before you, you reach a default point. Uh, because then you know, the, then you're in a whole different ball game. I mean, it's it's very hard then to get investors back uh, to buy your, your your debt. So how then do we prevent ourselves from getting there? I think we've we've been a mixture of luck and a little bit of good uh, management, fiscal management by Tito Boweri and our Inon Kordongwana, the new finance minister. Looks like he's pursuing the same sort of fiscal goals and going down the same path as Tito Boweri was. He'll be a smarter i think a more tolerant political player in the game um but the 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 consolidation that they are trying to enforce is one way of doing it but without growth without getting real stimulus into this economy and getting confidence into the economy and getting businesses built to create the jobs to get the taxpayers to provide the funding to get the virtuous circle moving again i'm not sure how else we do it on a sustainable basis no, this is right. Um, I mean, you 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 can cut back expenditure and you can you know continue with that, uh, but that is not a sustainable way to, to do. As you need you you need to get your expenditure and revenue in line with each other. So I think at, at almost at the same time we need to get growth going, get the revenue base higher, but then also uh, sort of cut back on the let's call it the less productive. Uh, uh, spending, and if you can get both of those things going at the same time, um, then of course you 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 have a, a, a fighting chance. The, the bottom line, in terms of the fiscal arithmetic, um, is that the cost of our debt, um, so long-term interest rates, are, are in in nominal or in real terms, are higher than our growth rate, um, and that is not a sustainable position. So you need to turn that around and get growth more or less and preferably higher uh, than the cost of our uh, debt. Now that's easier said than done given where we are, uh, but that that is the ultimate go goal and the way that you sort of uh, correct the fiscal situation. So how do we get growth going? Well, we've sort of spoken about, um, well, at nauseam we speak about the, at the reforms, right? Or about the, the reforms. Um, we, we've started the conversation about, uh, about power. And I really think, I know we hop on about it, uh, but, but we should not underestimate the, the constraint that that is on, on, on this economy. Uh, so we really need to get this, the, the private sector uh, generation going. I mean, it's ridiculous, Bruce. We, we had stage six in 2019, right? Uh, the ESCOM management said to the government that look, the way, the only way that they said ESCOM can't fix this, right? Uh, we, can, we can do our maintenance, but we need 4,500 megawatts of additional private sector power. There's been zero added since we've now two years uh, later. Uh, so we really need to get um, that, uh, that, that going. Um, and then uh, in, in broad terms, I mean, I, I just think the regulatory burden on on business in South Africa is, is is quite extreme, but all of these 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 things add up as costs on um, on 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 business. So we need to have some way of sort of uh, correcting that and just make it easier uh, to do business in in this country.
Again, we pay lip service to it. I mean, our president, who has had a sojourn in business, he chaired MTN, one of the most commercially successful businesses on the African continent. He chaired Bidvest, for goodness sake. He didn't attend any board meetings the year that he was chairman um, uh, because he was kind of busy with Shanduka and other things. But he has had business exposure. And certainly the corporate sector had, had a bigger effect on Tito Boweni, who spent some time on the Discovery Board and uh, Angla Gold Ashanti and one or two others than it did on Sir Ramaphosa, certainly from an implementation point of view. Sir Ramaphosa talks the talk, but you know you can't do everything, I suppose. And if you're not surrounded by like-minded individuals within your cabinet setup, you can't really drive that reform agenda too far. Uh, agreed, Bruce. And, 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 and I think it goes even uh, further down than, than, than cabinet. Um, you know, the, the officials within departments that, that, that really have to implement these, these policies and engage with, with, with the private sector um, and the regulators. I mean, so there's so many facets here. Um, uh, you, you think about NURSA and ICASA and, and the important role that they play in getting these, these reforms uh, implemented. Um, so the, the sort of skill base right across um, these institutions, um, I think, you know, there are issues there. Um, so I think even if, if we all agree in, in cabinet, um, uh, will the question then is, will we still be, uh, even then, will we be able to implement? Um, so I think there, you know, there's deep lying um, uh, uh, skills deficits uh, that, that need to be corrected. Um, and that, and I think that is precisely why it's taking long because it's not, mm -hmm. you don't do that overnight. But you then look at Transnet and Transnet is badly broken. Uh, Brian Mulefe did his best. Siobonga Gama lost his job over um, allegations yet to be proven in court of corruption. Um, we've seen Prasa collapse. We have seen um, so much go wrong within that really important fundamental infrastructure part of South Africa. Transnet is losing kilometers of power cables on a daily basis. Um, miles of rail lines are stolen. People build uh, settlements over rail lines that are not being used because the trains aren't running, for example. And so Portia Darby comes to Transnet and she says, I have a plan, but I need a hundred billion rand. Um, and this to me was like the great moment for South Africa because Every banker I talk to said, well, we're willing to lend the money, but we need to see what the return profile is going to be. Give us that, mm -hmm. and then we can make a risk-weighted decision as to whether or not we do this. Uh, but we're very keen to do this. So there's no shortage of desire, will, money to actually begin to address some very fundamental problems. It is just the question of getting the blimmin' red tape out of the way so that we can get this done. Yeah, uh, correct. Um, and, and if, if I may just use another example uh, coming from ESCOM uh, recently. So we have the, the Public Finance Management Act. Um, we have lots of procurement regulations. And granted, I think some of these regulations have, have been tightened in, in the wake of state capture, right? So for good reason. But of course, there are unintended consequences of these regulations. It, it is difficult to operate. Um, so, you know, so it takes so long for ESCOM to get approval to, to do anything that that also leads to delays, right? So, so I guess we need a better balance between, you know, obviously you need to have regulations in place to, to prevent uh, corrupt activities and so on. But wow, I mean, we also need in some case, I mean, we now presumably have a, a capable corrupt three 
free management at ESCOM, right? Geez, but now we must give them the tools to actually do what, what, what they need to do. I was chatting to Andre Director the other day, and he said he had to spend 80,000 Rand on something. It was wires or little, I don't know, cuppies or whatever it was. It doesn't matter. He needed 80,000 Rand. He needed to write to National Treasury to ask for the money. Two months later, the approval hadn't come through. So he spent the money anyway. And he said, look, I'm going to get into trouble for it, but I, I just can't wait anymore. Um, and uh, and it's that sort of the, the PFMA, the Public Finance Management Act, has sort of got itself into this position because of the vast amounts of corruption that have been prevalent in the public sector for so long. So you shut down all avenues of corruption. And you also then, um, this was Helena Wasserman at Fin24 the other day saying, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is throttling. Um, and it's that unforeseen consequence of, you know, closing doors the whole time to try and manage a rotten system. Yeah. Hundred percent, and 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 of course, it's it's also the all of these things are also um, uh, consequences of uh, spending beyond your means because now the purse string is so tight um, that e that that even stuff that you really need to do, um, you know, you 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 think twice before you know you actually allocate money for uh, these things because there's so many many other. Uh, a demand. So I, I guess, again, it comes back to this story of, I, I, I almost want to say, you know, growth, growth fixes so many things. Um, uh, you know, it, it's this sort of virtuous cycle that, that you then get going. But growth needs to be, needs political willingness. It needs government to say, we can't do this. We've shown ourselves to be inept. We're going to go and do other things, whatever that job is going to be into the future. But we're going to let this thing fix itself. And we're going to allow for more unconstrained growth into the future. But you guys publish, and I found this the other day, the political constraint index, which I'd never heard of before. Um, and that seems to be the biggest constraint. It's not cap capacity, ability, lack of resources, lack of willingness, lack of eagerness, lack of a desire. It's political constraint. How do you measure political constraint? Yeah, so, so Bruce, this is in our manufacturing, uh, quarterly manufacturing survey, where we list a, a number of constraints. Uh, so these are the respondents are sort of senior executives in uh, manufacturing uh, firms. Um, and then we list uh, a couple of constraints. Uh, the one would be um, uh, demand, whether there's good demand for your products or not, um, the, the tax uh, system, uh, the cost of credit, and then uh, a sort of a broad statement, the general political climate. So we don't really sort of, uh, uh, we're not specific about it. Uh, so I think over time, people have grouped this um, you know, uh, labor issues, they will probably group under the general uh, political environment, policy uncertainty. Uh, I mean, obviously in the third quarter with, with the looting shock, uh, shock, that political climate uh, shot higher. So there, I think there's a number of issues that, that people or respondents when they answer that question are in the, in the back of their mind. Low cheating may even be considered as a sort of a, uh, a, a, a well, they may throw that under, under that, which is not necessarily mm. it is. But, but the, point, the point that you make is right. Um, I think this, the, the general uncertainty surrounding uh, where policy is going, um, wh what is happening with the political uh, environment, yeah, that, that, that is a constraint. And I think especially on investment, Bruce, um, uh, I mean, people go on with their day-to-day -day, uh, business, uh, you know, they have to, 
but the key is if, 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 if you are uncertain about these sort of things, you're not going to expand uh, capacity, at least not in South Africa. You may go offshore, as of course we've seen with many companies, um, but we need them, of course, to do it here. And they need the incentive, the environment in which to do it. And, um, you know, you cannot blame anybody who's responsible for investing other people's money for looking for the best destination for that money. It's, it's a, it is a governance uh, and a fiduciary requirement. You can't just keep throwing good money after bad. So the responsibility then is to create an environment that is more conducive and enables us to create a baseline for growth, for opportunities for people to improve their lives, because the alternatives are actually disastrous. I mean, do you, I, I fun, fundamentally believe we're in a better position now than we were three years ago. The Zondo Commission has made us feel worse because now we know what was happening in the Zuma era. Um, the economy is in a weaker position um, as a result of so much of the, the thievery and skullduggery that was happening during that Zuma era, which has now been exposed, and that's not been helped by COVID. Our unemployment rate is worse um, as a result of the lockdowns and the slowdowns of COVID. But so much is less bad than previously. Um, and just just the tone and the rhetoric of government is fundamentally different to what it was four or five years ago. Um, one's got to have a sense of we've got a better chance of fixing ourselves today than perhaps we had five years ago or not. I think undoubtedly so, Bruce. Uh, I mean, it's uh, we, we all get frustrated that the progress is slow and it is slow. Um, but, there, but, but there's not zero progress, right? Uh, I, I mean, if, if, if one thinks of, uh, I just take the, the revenue service, for example, uh, how that was undermined uh, during the Zuma years and how, you know, that has been, well, I don't want to say it's been fixed, but certainly there's a hell of a lot of progress that, that has been made under, under the new management. Uh, the National Prosecuting Authority is another example. Yes, very slow movement. But, but, but presumably the right people are in place there. Um, and I think a number of, of institutions, you, you, you have a similar situation. Um, uh, the SOEs we've spoken a lot about. Um, ESCOM is, is under severe strain, but they are not under severe strain because the current management, in my opinion, are doing the wrong stuff. I think they are focusing exactly on, on, on the correct things, uh, doing the maintenance. But of course, while you are doing that, um, you, you, you're shutting down units, um, you have load shedding, um, and, and, and we're all very frustrated about that. But this is unfortunately, you now need to go through this process, the correct process, it is painful, before you get to, uh, to the other side. So I think, Bruce, at, at the, the, the crucial thing for me is that it's going to take time, but in a number of areas, which is not the was not the case five years ago. We are at least focusing on on the correct things. Um, but it's not like it just um, excuse the pun, but you can't just flick a switch and the lights come back on after they've been off for for years, right? It, you know, it's going to take some time. How do we inject confidence? I mean, if you were talking to Helen Ziller right now, she would say, hey, "Stop! You you've got you know, uh, you've got what was the." Um, the, the Swedish thing where you're captured by your, your, your kidnappers, uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Um, you know, a lot of South Africans could be accused of having Stockholm Syndrome. You're in this mess. You can't get out of it. So you better like, you know, 
make friends with your enemies and 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 go go ahead and, and try and make a plan how do we not get caught in that stockholm syndrome thing but also not get drawn down by the negativity and actually go out and begin to grow and expand and develop um, enterprises businesses opportunities of which there are plenty we're just quite frightened of taking them yeah, Bruce, I, I think even during the state capture years, what, what really saved us, and, and you can think of a number of things, uh, the independence of the judiciary, for example, but I think another crucial factor is just the role that civil society played um, and, and, and to, to sort of push back against um, the, the things that, that went wrong. Uh, now you're starting to see um, local communities coming together and where service delivery is particularly poor, they're simply saying, but we're going to do it for ourselves. Now, once again, um, it's, it's, it's terrible that, that we've reached this situation. But on the other hand, it's, it's, a, it's very positive, I think, that people are not just sitting back and sort of accepting this. Um, you know, they are, they are coming together and, and, and making a plan. We sell a, a boer market plan. Well, certainly we, we're seeing this in, in numerous. Uh, now, now, I think, but that's not, that's not a, uh, as a, a sufficient condition to get us where we want, right? I mean, you need that, uh, but you need it. Uh, but, but more importantly, you then need an interplay between a more capable state mm -hmm. that is delivering better civil society continues to play their role and the private sector then comes on board in terms of support whether it's financing or investment if they can see uh, uh, more notable improvement on the uh, the reform the policy the, the political front but there's a fair amount of evidence of, of fatigue creeping in we keep talking about Burmaka planet south africa is so resilient and look how they stood up for themselves during the the riots in durban and people manned the barricades it was like paris in 1789 and you know and you get these wonderful stirrings of pride and relief and joy but you can only do this stuff for so long the state has to step up the state has to be made to do its job and if this state won't do it then the next one must Correct. Um, and, and, and again, the, the proof is in, well, one important proof is in, in, in the investment ratio. Um, so, uh, I mean, the, our fixed in res investment as a percentage of GDP, it peaked around 18% uh, 2008-2009. The first half of this year, it, it was 13% of, of, of GDP. Now, that's private and, and public. Now, you mentioned the word investment strike. So I, I hate that word, especially if, if it's on the private sector, because I think you're 100% right. They are not doing this because they are unpatriotic and they don't want to invest. They are doing it because the environment is not conducive. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I don't want to repeat what we've said already, but, but if, if that environment becomes more... Uh, look, let's put it this way. If that environment stays the way it is and, and, and it's not conducive, that investment ratio is simply not going to pick up, right? Um, and, and we're going to continue to sit here at, at, at very low uh, levels. 
I remember Tony Treyer having a strip torn of him publicly by Tabo Mbeki because he raised the issue of political risk in an annual report, an Anglo-American annual report. Could have been 2001, 2002. Um, and the sort of stuff that was going on in the background of South Africa, the, the slow meltdown of municipalities, the slow destruction of governance, was visible and was being noted by people who were very sensitive to these things. And government was reluctant to acknowledge it, didn't want to admit the fact that it, it couldn't control everything. And it, the, the wheels came off. Um, and it's at this point where private citizens have to step up uh, and really reclaim, I suppose, the, the South African economy, because um, we can't keep doing the things the same way as we've been doing for the last 25 years, because that is surely a path to disaster. My comforting point as, I, as we wrap up today is that we are now so cognizant of the problems, the next step is to fix them. Yes, 100%. And, and, and as we mentioned earlier, uh, it's not that we don't know what the problems are. Uh, they've been diagnosed from A to Z. Um, it is really now just, can we, can we get to a situation where you have a, uh, a a president, a cabinet that is on the same page. Um, uh, um, so we have a ANC elective conference next year, uh, December uh, 2020. Uh, can we get to a point where we, ha we have the president that has a, a decent majority? He is in a better position. Uh, the sort of the, the the radical economic transformation faction in that party has sort of been rooted out to a large extent. And we can ha really have an aggressive approach towards uh, reforming uh, uh, the economy. And I think that is, it's not inconceivable that that, that um, uh, could be uh, the case. We still need to get there. Um, but yeah, so, so I think we, we, we shouldn't lose hope, uh, Bruce. There's a lot that's wrong. There's a lot that needs to be uh, fixed. Uh, but to come back to your earlier question, I, I do think we are in many facets in, in a better position now than we were uh, uh, three years ago when, when President Ramaphosa came uh, to power. At that point, we will leave it. Thank you very much indeed. From the Bureau of Economic Research, Dan Hegel on the other side. Over to you. Thank you, Hegel. Thank you, Bruce. I really appreciated uh, you know, listening to you. The fact that you highlighted the issues that, uh, that we have as a country, not just the issues, but also how they can be fixed. I think that that is fantastic, but it does sort of lead us to, you know, the position that, that our clients are in. Bruce, you referred to the Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome. You know, we become captured by the situation that we are in, but even though we are on this path, I mean, there are positives. We are on this, this path to, to fixing our economy, creating certainty or trying to create certainty. How do we actually go about still making investment decisions, taking decisions on our insurance portfolios? We can't sit back and, and wait. You know, we are faced with making these decisions um, on a daily basis. And we believe a skilled and trusted financial advisor can be invaluable during these um, uncertain times. They can provide you with um, objective insights, uh, help you consider alternative scenarios so that you can really make, you know, considered rational decisions on your wealth insurance portfolios as well as your investments. So if you have an advisor, I want to encourage you to engage with your advisor 
If you do not have an advisor, please uh, get in contact with us. We are contactable via our, our website and, uh, and we'll put you in touch with an advisor. And then, you know, be sure to, to register for, for our, our next exciting speaker. We kick off 2022, the 2022 Think Big series. Our first speaker next year will be Professor Bunang Mahali. He's the Chancellor of the University of the Free State. And we want to talk to him about the future of economic policy in South Africa. And with that, hope to see you next year. Keep well, stay safe, enjoy the holidays. Thank you for joining us for this PSG Think Big series podcast. Please do look out for more titles in this series.